the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Leipsch, and today we're talking with my new boss, Jesuit Father Chris Kellerman. Chris currently serves as the secretary of the Jesuit Conference Office of Justice and Ecology, otherwise known as OJE. Our office advocates for policy change rooted in our Jesuit identity and Catholic social teaching. We work on issues such as migration, environmental justice, criminal justice, and economic justice. And at the intersection of those issues is racial justice. Systemic racism touches virtually every issue we work on, from housing access to prison sentencing reform. Chris has spent much of his career as a Jesuit thinking and working on issues of racial justice. He was ordained in 2021 and previously served as the interim director of the Jesuit Social Research Institute at Loyola University, New Orleans, a social research center studying poverty, race, and migration in the Gulf South. He also worked as the assistant for justice and ecology in his home province, Jesuit Central and Southern. And last year, he published the book All Oppression Shall Cease, A History of Slavery, Abolitionism, and the Catholic Church. His book not only sheds light on the church's involvement in the global slave trade, it also contains lessons for how we can face the repercussions of this history today. The themes we talk about today are challenging, but I hope you can take away something from our conversation. Before we get started, a note. Today's episode includes descriptions of enslavement and in-depth discussion of the realities of the slave trade. Please take care while listening. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Meg. It's good to be here. Yeah, together in the office. <laughs> That's right. This I have not been in this room yet, this podcast room, so... This is a new area I get to explore now. <laughs> yeah, it's very cozy, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I just it's just I, I'm learning new things every day here. So. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So ostensibly, this interview um, is kind of a get to know you in your new position as the secretary of justice and ecology here at the Jesuit conference. But I'm also kind of treating it, treating it like a book talk because you recently wrote a book about the history of slaveholding and abolitionism in the Catholic Church. And we were in a meeting yesterday with someone who had read your book, and she expressed surprise basically because um, she basically said, you're you're a much more cheerful person, <laughs> an outgoing person than your book might convey. Um, yeah. And of course, your book deals with very, very serious themes. Right, right. But I'm wondering if you also have a kind of writing persona, like once you put words to the page, do you explore a different side of yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, when, when dealing with the topic of slavery and the topic of faith <laughs> and the Catholic Church, these are really serious issues about which um, many people have misconceptions and that deal with, you know, really painful and also at times heroic moments in history. And so I definitely do have a writing style. And I think that 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 comes through uh, just in, in some of the, the ways I like to structure sentences. And um, but but generally speaking, I had a I had a deep desire to like, I just want to get facts on the page and get people's stories on the page and allow them uh, when those moments came in to tell their stories, you know, to make their arguments against slavery uh, and also to allow those who were making their pro-slavery arguments to like, let's examine them with nuance too and try to understand how is it that seemingly, you know, people that maybe we look up to in church history came to uh, defend you know, something so inhuman, something so um, terrible, uh, because I think that that when we do that, we can learn. We can learn from, you know, well, how, how, how might I today be participating in oppression without even realizing it, right? And so it was really important for me as much as possible to sort of stay, to get out of the way and let those stories and those people be on the pages. Um, Though at the very end of the book, I let my own kind of um, my my own kind of uh, passion come through to just uh, yeah as as more of sort of a theological 
ending and sort of a pastoral ending of like, how do we move forward in hope after reading such a, uh, you know, after learning all this really dark, terrible stuff about our history. But yeah, generally speaking, uh, as, as the, as the woman that we talked to yesterday uh, mentioned, you know, I like to laugh a lot. I like to smile a lot. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw immediately what she meant when she was like, whoa, your personality is different than I thought it would be. So. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is that you kind of, in writing this, tried to keep researcher Chris and author Chris a little bit separate from perhaps Catholic priest Chris, who mm-hmm. is also kind of processing and coming to terms with the history that you're uncovering kind of like as as it's going. Um, yeah. Is that is that correct? Well, yeah, something like that. I mean, on, on the one hand, um, what I could not do when I went into this research, I mean, I, I, had, I, I sort of I can only bring myself to it. Right. I can't I can't bring somebody else to, to this research. But um, and, and certainly part of that was I have a, a pretty good theological background, which allowed me to maybe understand some of these uh, theological debates over slavery in a way that perhaps a secular scholar who's not familiar with the Catholic tradition might just not pick up on certain nuances or what certain terms, you know, are are specifically loaded in in the Catholic world or that kind of thing. And so that was really, um, you know, that, that part of me was really helpful. What I couldn't bring with me or that I sort of had to fight against a lot was um, the desire to, defend the church at every turn because you know i think as um you know as a as a practitioner of any religion you you love it you've dedicated your life to it i've dedicated my life to the catholic church as a priest in a in a special way and so i want to be proud of it and i want to spread the good news and that kind of a thing um but you know and and so i had to kind of put that aside a little bit because at the end of the day, actually, what our what our faith values is the truth. And so seeking the truth about what happened in an accurate way um, without sort of my impulse to want to defend was, was actually, in, in my understanding, in my way of, of um, viewing this work, a, a deeper commitment to my faith <laughs> was to say, well, let's find out exactly what happened you know, as, as much as we can. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when I'm talking to people, I mean, it, it's an extremely difficult book to read. And by that, I mean painful. It's very painful. It's painful to do the research and it's painful for people to read. And often then when I'm talking to them about it, it, it does kind of turn into a pastoral conversation of like, okay, so when we read that, like, what do we do next? You know, how do we put this together within ourselves? Who do we look to, et cetera? And so I can, I can never fully put that part of me aside that's just like caring for people you know this isn't research just to to horrify us and then we go home this is research hopefully that that um, impels us to want to change the world absolutely i want to take a step back from the book and we'll we'll come back to that later um but i want to get to to know you a little bit um you grew up in texas so I want to know a little bit about your your childhood there. You say that you became a political junkie at mm-hmm. a very young age, <laughs> yeah. um, which is appropriate for this job that we're in. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what drew you to politics when you were a kid? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was uh, a young kiddo growing up in Arlington, Texas, uh, I have one brother and um and, uh, you know, my mother and father, but, but a small family, right? Just the four of us. Um, I think that, you know, growing up, um, my, my, my parents had, they, they were members of different political parties. I won't say which, uh, so that, you know, uh, yeah, just to just leave them out of it for a second there so that they aren't <laughs> embarrassed if they listen to this later. Um, and, and so I was interested in that and I thought it was, you know, an, an, an interesting, uh, thing to be, uh, that they differed on. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. There was something about, I I really liked history from a young age. I was the kid that would like go to the public library when I was 10 and bring home like 15 books. that was all about different things, you know? And there was something about history that really 
caught my imagination. Um, and, and I think it was that love of history that then brought me into this idea of like, oh, yeah. And today in political conversations and elections, et cetera, like this is making new history. You know, uh, this is hopefully making better history, a better world. And and so I was pretty interested in that at a young age. The, the issue that I was first interested in as a young person was uh, protection of the environment, uh, because I'm also a birder, um, a, a bird watcher. So and it was before it was like post pandemic cool to be a birder because <laughs> now it's like everybody. OK, yeah. So I was a birder before it was cool. Um and so, so I was really a nerd as a child. <laughs> um, yeah, yourself. let's just let's yeah, just go yeah, ahead yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. take that there. Um, and so, protection of the environment was really important. And then I was like, oh yeah, okay. And there's things that that our government needs to do to help protect the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And this all just kind of grew into um, a deeper love of of more um, political issues. Um, and. Uh, yeah, that so after I graduated from high school, I was still I was very much a political junkie at that point. I had worked on a political campaign as a summer job and uh, went to Texas Tech University and uh, yeah, continued that love there and, and studying political science. Also was studying music as well. And uh, while I was at Texas Tech, uh, I guess it was my um, fourth year. I did an internship here in Washington, D.C., lived very close to where our office is right now. And as I was doing that internship, I decided that I did not want to go into politics, that I hated it. (laughs) And I started thinking, well, what am I going to do with my life? And uh, that was during a time when I was reading a lot of theology. I thought, you know what, maybe maybe something more along those lines should be what I do, something dealing with faith, something dealing with theology or theological writing. And um, basically, it was that that sort of led me eventually, after getting a degree in theology, to joining the Jesuits. And now here I am back in DuPont Circle, (laughs) working in a job that involves government as a Jesuit priest. So full circle. All comes back around. (laughs) And indeed, an office called Justice and Ecology. Here we are working, uh, you know, one of our main issues is is uh, that one that first inspired me. So, yeah, um, you mentioned that you love music, that you studied music. I also only just recently learned this, that that you played piano um, and I assume still still do to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we're often in the communications office and in the vocations world trying to think about how do we ask Jesuits about their vocation in an interesting <laughs> way that isn't yeah. just, you know, how did you decide to become a Jesuit? Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if there is a piece of music or any type of music that kind of evokes that period of, of discernment, vocational calling, you know, for you, whether it's something you listen to at the time or, or now you're like, yeah, that's it. That's what it felt like to be in that spiritual moment when I'm doing my theology studies, thinking about like, what do I want to do with yeah. what am I being called to? Yeah, yeah, there, there is definitely, I mean, as, as a musician and as a deep lover of music, I could probably answer that question with about 20 different pieces or songs, but, but there's definitely one above all that, that, that comes to mind first. Um, so my discernment, which, which, primarily took place when I was getting a master's degree in theology at the University of Dallas, uh, which was a, a wonderful time in my life. Um, in, in my discernment, a lot of what I prayed about was like, you know, is this something that I have the ability to do? You know, am I built for a life such as this? Um, you know, we, we all have our problems. We all have our struggles. We all have our good side and our bad side. And I was like, ah, am I just too like messed up to be a, uh, a Jesuit? Am I too messed up to be a priest, et cetera? And, and, you know, um, a lot of prayer uh, sort of led me to believe that God was, you know, uh, despite those whatever, you know, issues that I had or whatever, you know, flaws that I had that, uh, you know, that God wanted to give me the grace to, to, to make this happen, you know, and, and wanted me to try it out. And so, uh, I remember the night before, the night before I 
um, I haven't told this story in a really long time. The night before I found out whether or not I was accepted into the novitiate, I was sitting in my room and um, just listening to music and the song One Headlight by the Wallflowers came on. And uh, it hit me in that moment like, oh my gosh, yeah, this song is a perfect representation. Like, uh, you know, the song is all about, I mean, it's about a a couple who's in love, but like, um, we're going to make this happen even if we only have one headlight, right? Like we, we... we don't have it all perfect. We, we don't have it all together, uh, but, but we can drive it home with one headlight. And, um, and in that moment, I was like, okay, you know, whatever happens tomorrow, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive it home with one headlight. I'm going to make it happen. You know, I mean, I'm, God, God's going to be with me uh, and, and, and help me. I found out the next day that I was uh, accepted into the novitiate. And obviously I was really excited about that and decided that night I was going to... Um, go to a Texas Rangers game to kind of relax and celebrate. I loved uh, baseball and, and loved the Texas Rangers. So I got in the car, turned it on, and one of my headlights had gone out. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I just burst into laughter. I was like, all right, I get it, God. I get it. Um, so that song, One Headlight by the Wallflowers, has a has a special connection to my vocation discernment story. That's incredible. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. What did you think at that time in in novitiate and maybe during your early studies as a Jesuit that you would be doing? Because you had kind of already decided politics is not it. Mm-hmm. And now we know that that's where you've ended up. So what yeah. were you thinking mm-hmm. you you wanted to do as a Jesuit? You know, I'm I'm kind of one of those people who like whatever I'm doing, I want to do it for the rest of my life. And uh, I hate to admit that, but it's true. Um and and when I entered, you know, I, I was just off of a master's in theology. I wanted to be a theologian. You know, that's what I loved. Um, and then at one point in f- my formation, uh, as all Jesuits are, I was um, I had a period called Regency, which is three years of ministry. And I was teaching high school and I absolutely loved it. And I wanted to teach high school the rest of my life. <laughs> um, it was a wonderful experience there at at Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora, a wonderful school with wonderful people, and uh, still is. And and so um, that was that was a tremendous experience. Um, but yeah, you know, it it was during my final theology studies, where I was getting my Master of Divinity at uh, Regis College at the University of Toronto and studying for the priesthood. Um, you know, back in theology again, studying theology, where where my heart caught fire in a really strong way of like, I just know that I want to spend the rest of my life spreading, you know, spreading the gospel, spreading God's kingdom, and and especially doing that through fighting oppression in the world, um, fighting oppression in the church and fighting oppression in our world. And, and um, you know, particularly through the, the richness of Catholic social teaching. And so um, th- that's when a really strong, fire was like, no, this, this is, this is how you bring it all together, Chris, you know, the faith side of you and the politics side of you of like, of, um, of being a priest, right? Because we don't, we don't attach ourselves to a political party, right? It's, it's the vision of Christ, um, that, that we promote. And so, um, since then I've been pretty on fire for that. Of course, you never know as a Jesuit they're going to do next, but once again, I hope that I am in this for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) We like to hear that. (laughs) So you were ordained in 2021, and at the time you were working as a visiting fellow at the Jesuit Social Research Institute at Loyola University in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and your research there was was mainly focused on systemic racism and the history of, of slaveholding. So I'm curious what drew you first to that kind of issue area, yeah. um, and then second, you know, why why did JR, JSRI, you know, which is primarily concerned with issues of poverty, criminal justice, systemic racism, as it manifests kind of today in, in our current society. And, you know, a lot of your time has mm-hmm. been spent looking at the past. What has yeah. led up to that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have been really, you know, I mentioned that that I've been interested in history for a long time. One of the things I was always really interested in was Black history and and particularly like 
the, the history of slavery in the United States, like how did this happen? How did this horrible thing happen? And as I was, uh, as I, you know, continued to uh, receive more education. And I mean, I remember as an elementary school um, kid writing a, uh, doing my major project in class over, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And like, I kept wanting to learn a little bit more about this and try to understand this, this, um, you know, black history in the United States. And so that was always something that I, that I cared about. So when I was teaching at um, first St. Louis University High School in St. Louis for a year, and then three years at Regis Jesuit in Denver, uh, I, I became much more interested in how issues related to racism impact our students. And um, so the, the phrase that you often hear for this, these kinds of issues is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I became really interested in those and in anti-racism and like, how do we better support our students of color in our schools um, and help them to feel more included? Um, and how do we also um, better educate our uh, white students to, to sort of understand that history? And um, yeah, and, and just to, to build an environment where um, all members of the body of Christ are, are welcome and are strengthened in one another so that we can build a community of love, right? That's what it's all about. That's what DEI at the end of the day is all about from our Catholic perspective is building the community of love that Christ calls us to. Um, and so, so that then sparked something else in me um, besides just the history. And, uh, and then when, when I was in, uh, in Toronto, I was like, you know, I'm really going to finally dive into this history of, of slavery and like, how did people theologically defend it? And as I dug in, I realized like, oh my gosh, the Catholic church theologically defended slavery for centuries. And then I wanted to know how that happened. And it just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. And at the end of my time in Toronto before uh, I was ordained a deacon. I was just so on fire at this point and was reading more and more about racial justice, reading more and more about slavery in the church um, and, and just caring so deeply about this that I went on my uh, retreat, my diaconate retreat, uh, an eight-day silent retreat before I was ordained a deacon. And, and this now we were in the pandemic. and um, And it was on that retreat where I was really like, you know, um, where I really felt strongly more than any, any calling I felt in my life that uh, God was calling me to dedicate my life to this kind of work, um, to, to fighting racial injustice in society, um, and, and to help our church to be a more racially just church. Um, and so, um, and then in, you know, strange coincidence of, of life, um, you know, I was ordained a deacon and um, gosh, I think it was the next day uh, George Floyd was killed. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I knew at that point I was going to JSRI. And um, so it felt like this, uh, you know, an extremely difficult time to be doing this research, but also a, a time of, you know, a great kairos, as we say, uh, you know, to really um, dig into this more and see how can we help the church to be a more racially just place so that we can help our society to be a more racially just place. So out of this research that you kind of were, were conducting it at JSRI, you wrote and published a book called All Oppression Shall Cease about the history and theology of slaveholding in the global Catholic Church. And its scope is, is wider than even I had initially mm -hmm. realized. Um, documenting not only biblical references to slaveholding and enslavement, um, but also papal writings from basically the nascent mm -hmm. church until now. Um, and I think there might be a temptation for people to ask, you know, why does what the Pope wrote 400 years ago matter? Sure, yeah. as, as you said, maybe there were papal writings that defended slavery. Um, but that's, you know, a, a kind of that was then, this is now sort of idea. 
Um, so yeah. why, from mm. from your perspective, is it important to study and document, you know, papal bulls and and the theology that justified enslavement for yeah. you know hundreds of years? Right. Yeah, it, that that's a great question because when we're talking about these papal bulls, like um, the the two bulls of Pope Nicholas V that authorized really the the beginning of the slave trade. We're talking 1452 and 1455. You know, that's a really long time ago. And yet, and yet, the Atlantic slave trade lasted 400 years. It was four centuries. Um, Just to think about, like, like one thing that I sometimes say when just of thinking about like how long this lasted, um, the, the start of the slave trade was a few years after um, St. Joan of Arc was martyred. And uh, when the slave trade ended, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was already alive, right? So when you think about this stretch of lives, that this lasted from, from nearly the life of Joan of Arc to Franklin Roosevelt, um, it was massive, right? And not only that, I saw this in the newspaper uh, just recently, only within the last few months, um, the last child of an enslaved person died. Wow. This was this. So this is not um, long past history in in a way. It's actually quite recent history. You know, there were, uh, I worked at a a black Catholic church in Baton Rouge for two years. There were members of our congregation whose great-great-grandparents were owned by the Society of Jesus. There were members of our congregation whose grandparents were enslaved. Um, and so this, this is, is really quite recent history when we consider the history of our world and the history of our church. And, and um, it's history that has had a huge impact on our world today. Uh, the African diaspora throughout the world um, experiences discrimination and experiences uh, tremendous inequity, um, economic inequity uh, compared to other racial groups. And, you know, the fact that for 400 years, such people were denied wages, <laughs> right? I mean, wealth building happens uh, primarily hereditarily, right, through passing down wealth through generation. Well, if you can't pass down any wealth to your descendants, your descendants are going to be poor, right? And so what does that mean? It means that the Catholic Church in the in the 1450s gave the green light for this horrible commerce, this horrible injustice in history to uh, occur and did not withdraw that authorization till almost 400 years later. And so uh, we have some reckoning to do. We have some reckoning to do with that history and the impact that it has on our world today. Um, so yeah, it, it, it may feel like a long time ago, but it, it couldn't be more present in a way. Yeah, I think as you say there, the, the effects that are felt um, in our in our current social and economic climate um, going that way. But I think I uh, there's also the scope of, um, you know, how the Catholic Church used enslaved labor to um, to expand the church itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what role um, enslaved labor played in essentially aiding the church in in its expansion during this time of global colonialism. Yeah, yeah. The um, when when the Spanish and Portuguese were colonizing the Americas, um, they wanted to mine. They wanted to mine for gold and other precious metals. Um, at first, they tried to get uh, indigenous people. They tried to force enforce indigenous, excuse me, force indigenous people into this labor. Um, but, but at one point, the Spanish crown um, basically forbade uh, any, any enslavement of any indigenous peoples. This was in uh, 1542. And so at that point, uh, 
um, the Spanish government started really increasing the amount of purchases they made of enslaved people from Portugal, because Portugal was running the slave trade in Africa. And, um, and so what happens then if, if you are, you know, the church and you own all these enslaved people, they can do, they can do the building, right? Of your churches, they can build your house. They can be doing all of, um, you know, the, um, the manual labor while you're out there, um, you know, converting indigenous people, let's say, or tending to your parish. So an example of this that I often point out that, that is, a uh, quite striking, I think is, is, or, you know, just striking to consider is we all love the movie, the mission, right? Where the Jesuits are working with the indigenous people and where they're, um, you know, ministering among them and defending them. Well, those missions could only happen because the Jesuits of that province owned enslaved black people. Right. And you don't see that in the movie. Right. Um, but absolutely, the spread of the faith in in the Americas uh, can greatly be attributed to the fact that um, that that black enslaved black Africans and often enslaved um, black Catholics were were forced to um, do this labor to help build up our church. Um, so so there's an enormous uh, debt that we that we owe as a church and, um, and once again, um, you know, a reckoning that needs to happen, right? We all love the mission, the movie, but, but we need to know what was really happening behind the scenes. Hmm. You say that you started and you mentioned earlier, you know, that, that you started this research process with certain questions, um, and you kind of alluded to perhaps a misconception that um, in proliferating chattel slavery, the Catholic Church as an administrative body um, contradicted its own teachings and its own theology. Oh, yeah. uh, but that conclusion isn't supported really by your research, or, or at least at yeah. the very least, it's much more complicated. Right. Um, so you said in an interview with the Black Catholic Messenger that you know, the deeper you dug, the more of your hypotheses about how this happened just kind of unraveled. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? What did your research uncover? Sure. So if you if you take a look at church documents from, let's say, the last 150 years that talk about slavery, they're all going to say pretty much the same thing, um, except except perhaps for for super, super recently. Um, they're going to say that the church, uh, let's say in the first thousand years of its existence, the first 1500 years of its existence, um, perhaps tolerated slavery because it was so widespread in the world. There was nothing you could do about it. And yet how yet yet we were constantly trying to get rid of it. We were constantly trying to make enslaved people's lives better from biblical times forward. Um, we, we really improved the state of enslaved people after the pagan Roman era. And we just, we were constantly trying to get rid of it. Um, and then by the time we got to the medieval era, it was pretty much gone. And then out of nowhere, here comes the Spanish and Portuguese starting this terrible thing called the slave trade, which the popes were against from the very beginning. And, um, and you know, eventually it was truly, it was truly the, uh, the pope's efforts that led to abolition. This is the kind of story that you find in church documents. Um, and, and because of that, this has really spread a lot. And a lot of people believe this. A lot of people believe this. And they'll say things like, well, slavery in the medieval era or slavery during the time of Jesus was really different, was really different than, than slavery in, you know, the 18th century or slavery in the slave trade, et cetera. And, um, and so there's all these conceptions that go around, which basically leave, um, you know, that, that basically keep the church's hands clean in some way, in some way. And and I had a lot of those same misconceptions. But as I dug deeper and 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 read more and more, they all went away. They all went away. And I came to realize that, well, actually, chattel slavery was was pretty darn similar uh, in the 18th and 19th, excuse me, in the 18th and 19th century. 
uh, as it was to chattel slavery in the second century, because you're a <laughs> you are a piece of human movable property in both situations. Your children, uh, any children that you give birth to, if you're an enslaved woman, become the chattel property of your master as well. You can be forced to work your entire life without pay, and you can be uh, beaten as physical punishment. And that's that's what chattel slavery at its most basic definition is. And that's what it was in both those eras. Um, and so uh, came to see really that, that the church supported and theologically defended chattel slavery from the very beginning all the way until the late 19th century, really. And it, and it wasn't until Pope Leo XIII that the church changed its teaching to be fully against slavery. And, and, and certainly since then, um, you know, the church has been very bold in, uh, and has really expanded upon that with Catholic social teaching to defend, um, you know, the dignity of human persons. But, but prior to that time, you know, we, we, we allowed it and, uh, and defended it. And so, um, Another thing that I should add is that the Society of Jesus was among the um, the most significant defenders of not just slavery itself, but the African slave trade. So while some uh, priests were very boldly speaking out against the Atlantic slave trade, which happened very early on in the trade's existence, the Society of Jesus and its theologians um, found moral reasonings and ways to somehow try to defend it. And they were really defending it to their own advantage because by the year 1760, the Society of Jesus owned over 20,000 people, 20,000 enslaved people. Wow. Uh, that's more Jesuits than there are today uh, by quite a lot, right? And so uh, the Society of Jesus, I should say, <laughs> really has not reckoned with this history. I mean, in the United States, um, we've taken some really important steps to do that. But but the Global Society of Jesus um, has not reckoned with this history in any way. And so it's, uh, yeah, it was really, really troubling research. But but um, one thing I say is that the deeper you get into it, the, the, more de- the more depressing it gets, the darker it gets, you know, when we see how the church played a role in especially the Society of Jesus. Yeah, I think one of the shocking revelations of your book and of your research is precisely the entanglement of theology and a justification of enslavement and the slave trade. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the themes that you encountered. I know you took a look at Jesuit theologian Molina, for example. Mm -hmm. What what were some of the things that that they were arguing? Yeah, yeah. So you got to kind of uh, brace yourself for for the things I'm about to say, because they're 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 really crazy and they're, um, you know, evil. So just a little a warning there. Um, Luis de Molina was a really important Jesuit theologian at the end of the 16th century and uh, very high profile, very well respected. He writes the first major lengthy theological analysis of the trade. The reason why he needed to write this analysis was because people were denouncing it. People were saying that um, that maybe uh, that, yeah, if, if we were to compare it to the slavery of the past, that there were a lot of kidnappings happening. So instead of prisoners of war, legitimate, let's say just wars, they were capturing um, prisoners and enslaving them, that people were simply being kidnapped, right? So there were people being unjustly enslaved, um, which there's a whole set of theology there that we're not going to go into right now. But but, but needless to say that, that kidnapping was not something that was supposed to happen. And there was a fear of that. Um, people were talking about the ships and how these, I mean, everybody knew from very early on that some of these ships had like a 30% mortality rate, right? So there, there are these death traps. People were talking about that. Uh, and people were talking about, you know, the pain of displacement from your native land, the pain of being torn from your family. I mean, all of these all the things that we know today were horrible about the slave trade. People knew in the 16th century. Um, it was documented. And so Molina 
um, writes, and he says that all of those things are true, that, that all of those things are absolutely true, that there are people being kidnapped, that the ships are in really bad condition, and that, um, and, and that you know, um, yeah, it's difficult being a slave. <laughs> but then he says, but, you know, slavery's always been okay in the church. And he says, you know, and it is true that if someone's been kidnapped in Africa and sold into slavery, they need to be freed because that's not fair. But let's say that you're, um, you know, a wealthy person living in Brazil and you go to a slave market and you approach the market. Well, you don't know, Molina says, who there has been enslaved justly according to law and who's been kidnapped. And he says, so uh, you need to investigate. You need to find out. He says the way that you can investigate is, you know, he doesn't really say how, but but one thinks, you know, okay, you're going to ask the merchant. Well, okay, is the merchant going to be like, oh, yes, this person was kidnapped. You should buy them, right? No. And and But what Molina says is the person is enslaved until proven that they were kidnapped. Wow. And then they can be... Then they then once you prove that they were kidnapped, they need to be freed. He says, but you have to you have to prove that first. In the, but if you can't, you can go ahead and buy them. And then he adds in that in your investigation, you shouldn't believe the enslaved person because they'll lie. Right. And so um, what happens here? Well, Molina's uh, this this Jesuit theologian's writings become very popular, become very influential. And we see the Spanish government 70 years later defending the trade by using Molina's arguments, right? And so um, and there were other Jesuits who followed in that tradition of Molina saying those same things. Now, what Molina does not do is bring in explicitly racist arguments uh, because at this time in history, there are slaves in Europe. There are enslaved people in Europe who are black. There's enslaved people in Europe who are, are what we would say white-skinned, you know, light-skinned people. Um, but only a few decades later, as other theologians start saying, no, Melina, like that, that's the dumbest argument ever that, you know, someone's slavery status like changes while they're on the ocean. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like freedom, freedom needs to be preserved above all. Um, you know, it should be innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent, et cetera. Um, other Jesuit theologians then respond with racist arguments, mm. saying things like, oh, well, um, black people are um, naturally built for slavery, which, of course, there's no evidence for that. It's just a made up racist argument, but it's to defend something that they know isn't going how it should be, right? Um, so they make up these arguments to justify these atrocities, uh, or they'll say things like there was this really terrible uh, misinterpretation of scripture. Um, in, in There's a moment in scripture in which Noah, after he gets off the ark, uh, curses his uh, grandson Canaan, who was the son of Ham, and Ham has seen uh, Moses like naked in his, ar- in, in his tent, and um and uh, Mo, uh, excuse me, not Moses. Noah, Noah says, uh, you know, Canaan, you are cursed and you are going to serve your brothers. And people started to say, well, Canaan, Canaan was like um, Canaan. Canaan must have been turned black by the curse. And therefore, black people are, they would say, the uh, descendants of Canaan or the descendants of Ham. And they are cursed with both blackness and slavery. Now, nowhere in scripture is is Canaan connected at all to black Africans. Um, But this is something that people made up again to justify this. And so, uh, and unfortunately, it was Jesuit. It was Jesuit writers that that spread these these ideas as well. Um, And so, um, yeah, and, and, and I should also mention, again, People at the time debunked all these theories. There were other priests that were, um, they were few and far between, but but they were debunking these theories. 
there were black Catholics at the time who were fighting against uh, these theories and against slavery. So, um, yeah, we can't say, oh, they didn't know better back then. Uh, they certainly did. They had all the resources they needed to, uh, to, to know the truth. But unfortunately, this is, you know, a very um, terrible side of, of the churches and, and particularly the society's history. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about those black Catholics and theologians who yeah. are abolitionists, because mm -hmm. I think you you say and, and argue that they've largely been written out of this historical narrative. Yeah. Um, uh, but you also write about um, these groups called confraternities that were mm -hmm. fighting enslavement. Um, what were these groups and, and how were they fighting? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because we often think of the beginning of the abolitionist movement being uh, Quakers, Quakers in Germantown, uh, you know, present day Pennsylvania, uh, <clears throat> the, these four Quakers that that said that uh, they were going to be against slavery. I think it was like 18. No, excuse me, 1688. And then, you know, we jumped to like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison and Sojourner Truth, right? All of whom were ext extraordinary people. However, However, uh, there were um, people fighting against the slave trade from its beginning. So Catholic confraternities, black Catholic confraternities were kind of like what we have today with the Knights of Columbus or the Knights of Peter Claver, an organization like that. Um, they, they focused on supporting each other. They focused on spiritual and prayer commitments and um, both enslaved and free people. Uh, Catholics of color could be members of these confraternities. And um, we see as early as the 16th century, some of these Catholic confraternities um, petitioning the King of Portugal to be able to, that, that members should be able to sue for their freedom. Um, and so there, right there, it's like 1518 that this happened. We see that, uh, you know, Black enslaved Catholics are not happy with their state, right? It's a terrible state and they're trying to get out of it. Um, there were also uh, revolts of enslaved black Catholics at that time uh, in the New World and in, in Portugal. Um, and, and then these confraternities really grow this opposition to the slave trade into a strong movement in the late 17th century and send two representatives to Rome to ask the Pope, uh, Pope Innocent XI, to condemn the slave trade as uh, a previous Pope, Pope Paul III, had condemned the enslavement of indigenous peoples. Um, unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. The Pope did not uh, issue the condemnation of the slave trade. But uh, just to think about the lengths that they went to, of traveling from Brazil all the way to Rome um, in order to beg the Pope based on their Catholic faith, right, to, to, to condemn this. It just shows the incredible uh, resilience and, and faith-filled desire for justice that Black Catholics had at this time and, of course, still do today. Um, so... You know, and, and there were also a couple other priests that were really involved in a parallel effort at the time to get uh, to get Pope Innocent to condemn slavery. Um, they were Capuchins and, and uh, these two Capuchin priests, they were excommunicated by the Bishop of Havana. And, and during their uh, weird sort of canonical status where they were trying to um, they were trying to be, be freed and be able to minister again, they, they were excommunicated because they were they were speaking against the slave trade. Um, they wrote these really powerful uh, tracts that were published in, I think, 1682 uh, that went into why the church should should be against the trade. And um, they brought that to Rome as well. Um, like I said, they weren't successful, and it's extremely sad to think about that. Uh, and yet, and yet, it shows us, you know, from a faith perspective, that the Holy Spirit was still there, was still at work, working in people, you know, and helping um, these people to envision a type of Catholicism that was against this oppression. And so there's some real heroes there that I want everybody in the church to know about, you know, um, let's canonize them all. Right. <laughs> um, they were, they were incredible, incredible people. Yeah. I think, 
uh, it's, you know, I guess going back to our friend from yesterday, it it's interesting to me to see how you can kind of bring together that um, that perspective of of hope. It's obviously not without a, a full acknowledgement of of yeah. all the darkness here. Um, but I also know, you, you know, I think you told me about a year ago that, you know, this research process, this writing process um, really challenged your relationship to your Catholic faith and, yeah. and to your Jesuit vocation. Um, and so I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. And has some of that changed a little bit now yeah. that you've had yeah. some more time? You know, what what is your kind of relationship mm-hmm. between this work and your own spiritual life now? Yeah. You know, um, a couple things kind of, uh, well, I'll say this. When, when I was doing this research day in and day out, I mean, for hours and hours a day reading these accounts of these atrocities and realizing that our, <laughs> that our, that our church in some cases was um, just standing idly by or even endorsing it and participating in it. Um, when you think of just the scale of the slave trade, uh, you know, th- this isn't like, you know, we talk about the, the scandals of the church past. Like often we're talking about like, I don't know, medieval popes who like had a ton of money or, you know, had prostitutes in the Vatican or something like when, when you think about this, this is like, OK, this caused like millions of deaths. <laughs> this this caused enormous violence and pain and that kind of thing in history. And it, And I started to think like. Oh my gosh, the church was so wrong on this. Is there even a point of being Catholic at all, right? That we would get something so fundamentally wrong <laughs> that caused so much darkness and evil in the world. Um, two things helped me with that. Two things helped me with that. One was a whole lot of prayer, <laughs> was a whole lot of prayer. And, and two... I had the great privilege of spending two years working at a black Catholic parish in Baton Rouge, Immaculate Conception uh, Catholic Church. It's an amazing place. If you ever go down to Baton Rouge, uh, join them for Sunday Mass. Um, and, and as I mentioned, there, there are members of that congregation who, you know, their, um, their ancestors were enslaved by the Catholic Church. And yet here they still were in a Catholic church, praising God receiving the Eucharist, loving their faith and loving the faith community, and also fighting for justice in the world, you know, based on their Catholic faith. And I was like, you know, (laughs) if they're still here, I can still be here too. You know, it might, it would be taking the easy way out to, to leave the church and be like, well, I'm going to go find some other you know, faith that never was involved with slavery at all or something like that, you know. Um, but but that in its own way is a type of privilege that I don't think I'm called to exercise, <laughs> to live out, right? Um, it's like, no, I mean, these people right here, descendants of enslaved people, um, believe in the Catholic faith and believe in a vision of the Catholic faith that is liberative and that frees from oppression because that's who Jesus is. And that when he said in Luke chapter four, that uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to help set captives free and grant liberty to the oppressed, that he meant it literally, right? And so we're called to live at that mission as well. So their witness inspired me and reinvigorated um, my love of Christ and, and my love of the Catholic faith. Now, when we talk about Jesuits in the Society of Jesus, um, it's a little tougher <laughs> and I'm not quite there yet because sadly, sadly, uh, the approval of Jesuits owning slaves, enslaved people, uh, or at least the allowance of it goes all the way back to Ignatius. Mm. Uh, we know that Ignatius was asked by a Jesuit missionary if uh, the Jesuits could own enslaved people and among other questions. And when Ignatius responded He answered some of the guy's questions, but basically said, well, for the other things, you just decide yourself, which shows that Ignatius was not absolutely opposed to it. We know that there were Jesuits during Ignatius's time who were already buying enslaved people or or talking to 
the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, crowns about getting enslaved people. Um, St. Francis Xavier asked uh, a, a Jesuit who owned a Jesuit residence in India uh, that, that rather than hire, hire a gardener and his assistants, he should buy some slaves instead to save money, right? That's Francis Xavier. And so when you think about how this goes all the way back to really the founders of the Society of Jesus, then you start asking like, <laughs> and I'm to all of my listeners, to all of our listeners to this, I'm sorry about to say this, but like, like, did the spiritual exercises and discernment of spirits just not work this time around, you know? And so this is the kind of stuff that I really, um, that I really um, struggled with and still do. Um, now, the Society of Jesus today is doing amazing work around the world for social justice, including our office. We do really great stuff, right? Um, so like the current Society of Jesus is doing amazing things, but I do think that there is a need for the global society to admit what happened and also do a little soul searching and say, is there still material in our constitutions? Uh, is there still material in our way of proceeding? Is there maybe even still material in the spiritual exercises that once prevented us from being able to hear the truth and hear the Holy Spirit uh, and that might still be impeding us in some ways today, right? But unfortunately, I, I like I can't figure that out all by myself, right? So everybody listening needs to help me figure it out, and and uh, and push the Society of Jesus a little bit worldwide to to be thinking about this, um, and and you know so that we can again be a better uh, force for the gospel in today's world. There's a a sentiment that you write in the book, and this is probably a, a bad paraphrase, um, but you say that reckoning and, and the idea of reconciliation is good for us, that that in fact kind of uh, facing, facing these things can be, um, it's not only necessary and just, but, but also it, it can be good. Yeah. You know, one thing, <clears throat> I'm so glad you brought that up because one thing I've never understood is how, um, you know, unfortunately in society today, we're seeing, uh, you know, here in the United States, we're seeing more people really want to downplay the history of racial oppression, to downplay the history of slavery, um, and and to not teach, you know, more deeply um, anti-racism to students because they somehow think that by doing this, it will you know, make white kids hate themselves or it will make us hate America or hate the church or whatever. When, if there's one thing that we as Catholics know, it's that saying, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy at the beginning of every single mass, right? And going to a confession and admitting out loud where we have failed, right? is good for us. It makes us better people. It brings about forgiveness and grace and healing and helps us to be holier disciples, right? There's nothing anti-me about going to confession, right? There, there's nothing. Um, so, so, so why then would we be opposed to admitting our sins and the sins of our past even in, in other spheres, right? Um, reconciliation is a good thing. It's a good thing. It brings about, again, a deeper presence and sense of that community of love that Christ calls us to live in the world, right? Mutual forgiveness, um, healing, the building of goodness and peace through the grace of God. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that these ideas of reparation and restitution and reckoning, as painful as they might be, as painful as they might be, uh, can only bring good from them. I want to look now at the the present and mm -hmm. and perhaps into the future. How do you feel that your background in in this history, but also in you know issues of systemic racism more more broadly, influence how you think about 
your work here at the conference. And I say this knowing that you've been in the position for two months now, uh -huh. basically. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So not to put you in the hot seat, but you know, how how does what are you bringing to to this work? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I'm very excited to be here. And and for those who don't know, you know, here at the Justice and Ecology office at the Jesuit Conference, we're we're doing federal advocacy, we're doing government relations, um, and particularly trying to advance Catholic social teaching um, as as a source of of influence um, on legislation here in the United States. And so I definitely bring with me a deep passion for uh, for educating uh, with relationship to uh, racial justice, uh, both in history and, and living it out in practice, and a desire to, um, you know, help help the society to be a greater force for racial justice, not just here in Washington, but but throughout the United States. You know, I love the statements that the bishops of the United States have made with regard to racial justice. Um, open wide our hearts, brothers and sisters to us. You know, and if you go and read those, you just see like, wow, we have not done this yet <laughs> as a church and society. We have not enacted this incredible teaching, this incredible uh, call to uh, take a look at all of our institutions in the church and see if they are racially just, to take a look at, uh, you know, ridding all of society of any hint of, of, of uh, racial injustice, of like making this a central duty of our faith, you know? And, and so we need to start doing that, right? We need to start doing that. And so I'm really excited to see how we can work uh, on, on more legislation that is uh, related to building a more just society. And also, you know, um, a lot of, of people really struggle with this issue and trying to understand it, right? Um, maybe they, they feel intimidated by it. Maybe they don't understand the history and see why it's so relevant to today, right? It's like, okay, we've been, there isn't slavery today of, of African Americans, right? We abolished that in, in the 19th century. So maybe, you know, and, and we think about all of the great accomplishments of the civil rights movement. And so there, there might be some people that think like, well, why do we need to keep working on this today when we've made such amazing progress? Right. And so I think too, then there's, there's a need for us to, uh, yeah, talk to one another and, and, and in a, you know, our national environment today is so acrid and so vicious and polarized, right? To instead come together in a place of love and in a place of uh, mutual vulnerability and care for one another and be able to talk about these issues with honesty, right? And, and to allow people who maybe do struggle with why racial justice is important to ask questions, right? And to not shame them when they ask those questions. Um, and so that's a really important thing for me too, is, is to have those conversations with people and to not, yeah, not shame them, not make them feel embarrassed. Um, but instead, you know, uh, try as lovingly as I can to express why this is a part of our faith and why it's important. Um, and so, um, yeah, there is no reason that racial justice should not be an issue that is embraced by all political parties, that is embraced by, um, you know, all Catholics, all Christians, all people of faith, right? It doesn't have to be partisan. It doesn't have to be partisan. There's no reason why why it shouldn't be, um, uh, why it should be partisan. So, yeah, that's, a, that's definitely a great uh, passion of mine. Well, thank you so much for, for being here, Chris, for taking the time to, to chat with me. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure and uh, yeah, excited about the years ahead and working together. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Me as well. Thanks, everyone.
If you'd like to learn more about Chris's research, a link to his book is in the show notes. You can also stay in touch with our work at the Office of Justice and Ecology through our newsletter, which you can sign up for at jesuits.org advocate, also linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.